Chapter 7, I'm going to read our text and then I am going to uh, pray for us. Hopefully everyone had a wonderful uh, Christmas season, a wonderful New Year's. Uh, Welcome to 2019. Uh, Every time we get, it's just crazy, 2019, putting that on on dates or checks or whatever you put that on, uh, it's just 2019 and... um, I graduated from college in 2006, and I didn't, I don't feel that old, but the, the more you get to a new year and you kind of just, you do the math, you're like, wow, I've been out of college for 13 years. Um, so this is Luke chapter, chapter 7, starting in verse 36. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And and, and when she learned that he was reclining at at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with a perfume. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, "If if, if, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is and and who is touching him, and that is she is a sinner. Verse 40. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two uh, debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love them more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave everything. He said to him, you, you answer correctly. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman I, ent- I entered your house? You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her, with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but who is forgiven little loves little. 48. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were climbing at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so thankful again this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage, Lord. May you teach us as a church, as a body of believers, uh, how we should think how we should understand you, Lord, how we should understand your grace, how we should understand our own sin. Lord, I pray that you would teach us, that you would us, that you would encourage us. For some of us, that you would save us, we do not know you, that you would draw people that are far from you closer to you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the music that we've already sang, Lord. We thank you for the things that we've, that we've read or heard read. We thank you for the prayers that we were joined together and praying towards you, that we have access to your throne through the blood of Christ. We praise you for that. 
But Lord, we pray, Lord, for people in our church, Lord, that are traveling or going through sickness or other issues, Lord, we pray for them, Lord. But in this new year, Lord, we pray for spiritual uh, things, Lord. We pray that we would all grow in our knowledge of your word, that we would read your more, more this year than we did last year, that we'd pray more this year, Lord, that we'd be more dependent on you and understanding our insufficiencies without you, Lord. Lord, that we would grow in our, in our fellowship with other believers, that we would grow in unity in our, with our families, with our husbands and wives, with our children. Lord, we pray for that we would uh, love one another more, that we'd love one another better than we did last year as well. Not because we will earn, we'll earn salvation for it, not because by doing it, Lord, we, you are more pleased with us. We do it out of obedience because we love you. And we believe that your word is true. We believe your word is good. And therefore, we follow it. Lord, I pray that you would renew us this year. Lord, I pray for two brothers in Christ, one in a church that I've never, I don't, I've never heard of, Lord, who I read this prayer request this morning, uh, last night, Lord, who was driving home to his, his house and tried to help someone on the side of the road and was stabbed. Um, thankfully, Lord, they're, they're okay. But Lord, I was convicted, Lord, of his prayer request when he prayed that this man would come to know Christ. And pray that he would have the opportunity to share the gospel with him one day. Lord, may we have that attitude when someone has done something to us in violence or in hate. Lord, not, we're, not, we're, not, we're not saying that that type of action is right or good. Your word says quite clearly that it is wrong. But that our, our reaction is that we are no better. We're all sinners in need of grace. Lord, I thank you for bringing me to that prayer request. I pray for that brother. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring healing to his body. Lord, I pray for his ministry. I pray for another brother in town and his family who has gone through a very um, difficult week in dealing with their children. And Lord, uh, some of us know the details. We don't need to share all these details, Lord, but I, I pray for them. I pray, Lord, that you would bring peace to their home. Lord, I pray that you would give them, um, that they would understand your love, pray that you would protect their children. I pray for this particular person uh, who's done something wrong, I pray that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They would, con they would confess their sin. Lord, we pray for Servant Fellowship Church. We pray for uh, their leadership. We pray for their church. Lord, we pray that you would do uh, a wonderful thing in Boonville, that many would come to know Christ, and many would be discipled through Servant Fellowship Church. We love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. talk. I, I, you know, I think this passage, um, I, reading it this week and studying it this week, it was difficult because um, I am one who struggles in worship. I've always been one of those people that always looks skeptical upon those who raised their hands and screamed out loud during worship music. Um, always kind of very reserved, uh, kind of stay in my place, kind of stay in my bubble, uh, sing the songs, but not show too much expression during worship. And so I've kind of grown and matured in the years when it came to just enjoying and, and enjoying being in the presence of the Lord and worshiping him through song and, and enjoying worship time before the teaching of the word. Um, but this past really, I learned a lot when it comes to evangelical Christianity we, our definition of worship, I, I, I think it's a little skewed. Uh, 
use the word worship, typically we're meaning music. We're talking about singing. We're talking about that time before the preacher comes up and preaches the word. And most, for a lot of people, that's their favorite part of church, right? It's the music. It's the singing of the music. It's certain songs that they enjoy singing. And if they don't hear the song that they enjoy, they hear a few songs that they don't know, they tend to grumble. They tend to kind of have that, you know, kind of face. Several hundred years ago, when there was the Protestant Reformation and the Church of England, established in England, they presented the Book of Common Prayer, and they presented this, this book that all the churches in England who were Anglican, who weren't Catholic, would follow these, um, these the standardized worship of the entire Church of England, and it was very structured, it was very orderly, it was like people basically were told, and they just, hey, this is our worship structure, and you just read along or follow along. Um, there's very little participation amongst the congregation. Belief in the Church of England with the Common Book of Prayer was the rule of prayer is the rule of belief. So what was in the Common Book of Prayer was their beliefs. They kind of standardized their worship. However, memorizing or reciting lines of lyrics is not true worship, right? I mean, you could read a bunch of lines. You could read the lines that we underline up here, and you could say them but actually not believe them, right? Just because something comes out of your mouth doesn't mean you actually believe what's on the screen or what's on the piece of paper. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 8 through 9, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. In vain do they worship me. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, uh, Religious Affections, he talks about what is not religious affections. And he says, when we say things, when, when words come out of our lips, but we don't actually believe it, that is not religious affections. Showing religious affections is actually having religious affections. Then later on, hundreds of years later, kind of in the, after the 1960s, around the 1960s, 1970s, you started to get this Jesus festivals where music, and it came out of a lot of the Woodstock in the 1960s with the, 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 the emergence of folk music and rock and roll. This actually had an influence in the Christian culture that people started to, who, who were in that, in, in that culture, who got saved, wanted to bring new music into the church, which there were some good advantages, good, good benefits from that. So rock bands and, and sing, folk musicians began introducing new songs and styles. Worship became to mean experiencing music more than it was actually God that we worship. Influence changed the identity of worship to music and singing. While some true benefits have resulted in the explosion of Christian music, however, worship is not distinguished by style rather than vain or true worship. Some worship styles might fit your preferences, but in actuality, the worship is in vain. If you, oh, I like this style of worship or I like the songs of this worship, but that doesn't mean you're actually worshiping just because there's music. Just because it has Christ in the words, just because it has Christianity in the words, doesn't actually make it true worship. This is Bob Coughlin from Sovereign Grace who writes in his book, True Worshippers. He says, heated arguments about worship music styles have divided or destroyed congregations. Performance is often valued over participation and technology over truth. Many songs have been written by musicians who don't know their Bibles very well, resulting in songs that lack gospel and theological clarity. Worst of all, worship has been reduced almost universally to what happens when we sing. 
Worship time equals sing time. Delimiting a term to simply an action when the Bible speaks of worship in terms that are absent from our understanding of worship today. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and just share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Romans 12, 1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You never in those passages you hear, do you see the word singing or music? It's about sacrifice. Sacrifice is a key word mentioned in both passages. To do good, to share, your, to share what you have is pleasing to God. John Piper defined worship this way. He said, the inner essence of worship is to know God truly and to respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in a demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. He doesn't say that singing is not about, isn't, isn't worship. He's saying it's far more than just singing. It's also demonstrating acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. Worship doesn't matter. I'm not saying worship doesn't matter. Worship matters. However, worship is more than simply singing a song. Music is a part of worshiping God, but it was never meant to be the heart of it. Worship of God for the most of the history of the church has very, very little to do with music, had more to do with an identity. We exalt the one who is both spirit and in and truth. What does John 4, 24 say? Jesus says to the woman at the well, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. D.A. Carson, who's a New Testament scholar, wrote, God in truth is first and foremost a way of saying that we must worship God by means of Christ. Reality has downed and the shadows are being swept away. Only those in Christ can worship God as truth. So only those who are in Christ, those who actually are saved and have put their faith in Christ and have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, can actually worship God in spirit and in truth. Therefore, the act of worship is God-led and God-focused. So without God drawing you to worship, you cannot worship. And if God is at the focus of your worship, you're not worshiping. Worship starts with mercy from God in Christ and continues with exalting his glory in our hearts and by visible actions. If we're going to understand worship fully, we must start with our hearts, not with music, not with singing, but with our actual own hearts. If you do not have a heart of repentance and faith, you cannot worship. Edwards wrote in Religious Affections that you do not necessarily have religious affections if you have zealously engaged in external duties of worship. Whoa. So that doesn't mean you just because going to church or singing, you didn't actually worship, is what Jonathan Edwards is saying. Just doing it, just some, uh, even being zealous about it, doesn't actually mean you have religious affections. You may have sung this morning beautifully, even abundantly, yet you may have failed to worship. That could mean one of you in this room. You may have given tons of money with your mouth beautifully, and you actually didn't worship. You may have done it in vain, because your heart was not in it. We will see an example of that today in Luke 7, 36 
through 50. The main idea is true acknowledgement of your sinful condition and true faith in the one who saves transforms your nature and leads you to true worship. Some main points just for a foolish host, a wise sinner, a forgiving guest, and the great end of our existence. The title of the sermon is Guess Who's Coming from Dinner to Dinner. I've actually never seen this movie. Uh, there's been some versions of this movie that have been made. I think there was a movie with um, Ashton Kutcher and Bernie Mac where he was dating, uh, Ashton Kutcher was dating a, a black girl, and he brought, she brought him to dinner, right? And this movie is from the, from the 60s, and a white girl brings her black fiancé with her parents. Um, and I kind of, this idea that this Pharisee now brings Jesus to dinner, guess who's coming to dinner? Well, Jesus, the, the one who is saying all these different things that are just outrageous is coming over for dinner. We're starting off with a foolish host, a foolish host. Um, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So he asked Jesus to come eat. We don't know, we know later on in the passage that this, this Pharisee had a name, his name was Simon, which there's a, two Simons in the, in, the, in, the, in the apostles, right? I mean, there's Simon Peter, and there's another Simon. So like, a common name, right? So that really doesn't give us much about who the identity of this Pharisee was. All that we know is, is that Jesus had issues with the Pharisees. He, he called Pharisees when he was talking about John the Baptist, and they didn't accept God's purposes and actually rejected John's We know that they were very upset with Jesus when he healed a man with a withered hand on uh, the Lord. Um, right, full of rage, it says. They were so mad. They were foaming at the mouth. I don't know. I don't get too angry, but we've all gotten angry. We know certain things that just make us, but fill us with rage, right? We know that feeling. We've been there. So that's how they felt about Jesus when he healed the man with a withered hand. And uh, most likely, one of the Pharisees of those episodes uh, is the, the, the Pharisee that is, one of the Pharisees in those episodes has invited Jesus over for, di- for dinner. And uh, so one of those Pharisees is singled out and focused on with Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees in hot water. It's not like they had some, some peace agreement all good, and now they invited Jesus over for dinner. They're still in hot water. They still do not like Jesus. It's not wrong to assume the Pharisee may not have had good motives in its invitation to Jesus. Maybe his motives are sinister, looking for an opportunity to embarrass or place a trap for Jesus. We know in the rest of the Gospels that the Pharisees were known to do this. They would ask Jesus questions for the pure sake of trying to put him in a, in a corner to get him to say something so they go up and they can catch him uh, in, a her- in, a, in a moment of, of heresy or in a moment of error. Of course, Jesus is always smarter and knowing what their intentions were always was able to answer their questions by then presenting another question to them and then they had to run away uh, because they, I mean, you just can't put Jesus in a corner, right? Um, and they kept on trying to do this. So Pharisee singles out and focuses on, on, on uh, and invites Jesus over for dinner, maybe as an opportunity to embarrass or put a trap for Jesus. Um, and, and, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, movie Dinner for Smucks. Uh, it, it kinda, I think it has uh, Steve Carell in it. And uh, um, the, the, the character, Tim, is this executive, and his boss every month has a Dinner for Smucks. They would invite these buffoons to dinner. The, the object was to bring, over, to bring the most... The, those idiotic, I mean, the, the, the stupidest person they could find and bring him to this dinner. And he kind of had this idea that this Pharisee is, is it's like bringing this, who they believe Jesus is kind of a buffoon who's, who's just nuts and crazy, and he brings him over to dinner to embarrass him. 
The Pharisee hated Jesus, and they saw an opportunity to gather more evidence of Jesus' blasphemous nature. They are self-appointed guardians of their religious, ritualistic religion, and Christ with a threat with his message of grace and sinners. So building their cases against Jesus so they could rid themselves of him and his destructive ways. So Jesus goes to this Pharisee's house and reclines at his table. He, he dines with the Pharisee. He continues his pattern of dining with sinners, right? I mean, the Pharisees, even though they Jesus for dining with sinners, Jesus continues his pattern to have dinner with sinners. And this is another sinner who's invited him for dinner. As we will see later in the episode, Jesus knows what is going to take place. He knows the motive of the Pharisee, yet he dines with him anyways. An invitation to dinner with a sign of friendship and honor, and Jesus arrives in the spirit of friendship. He comes. Even if you question the motives of people, you in the spirit of friendship. Even if you're wondering if this person is inviting me over to their house to, for some sinister reason or for some other reason, you should go in, in the spirit of friendship. We shouldn't assume necessarily that's what people's intentions are or motives are. So Jesus goes in the spirit of friendship and uh, the, the beliefs of the Pharisees. So this event happens. We, they, they have dinner. We don't know what, what they talked about. Most likely, if you're going to invite a rabbi to dinner, you're going to talk about theology. You're going to talk about the law. You're going to talk about religion. I mean, what else are you going to talk about? Um, so they talked about this, most likely. And they were reclining at a table. And it was because they, used, they wore sandals, their feet were dirty. So they would sit at tables, and they would kind of and be in a reclining position, and their feet would be away from the table. Because you don't want your f- dirty feet near the food, right? So they would be, the feet would be away from the table, very relaxing posture. And this event happens, this shocking and crude scene. Jesus, this woman, comes off the streets and, and basically throws herself at his feet and begins to cry and weep and wipe his, his dirty feet and her tears with her hair. And it was very, it was very un, unusual and not becoming of a woman to lay her hair out. And, and, and actually, so her hair was flowing, and she used it to wipe Jesus' feet. And she had this perfume or ointment that she would then, that she spread it on his feet, anointed his feet with, and then kissed his feet. Very, a very crude scene for this woman just to come off the streets and do this. Think of the Pharisees and their reaction, especially the host and his reaction to this. She doesn't think she's worthy. She thinks that Jesus' response to the woman is shameful. He lets her do this. How dare he let this woman do this to him? The Pharisee most likely would have seen this woman before in the city. He knew this woman. He knew her to be a sinner. He saw her as unworthy, worthless, not deserving of a kind word of compassion. If he saw her on the streets, he would ignore her. And yet she comes into his house and interacts with Jesus in this way. And the Pharisee saw this and he said to himself, this man were a prophet. He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He's judging jury of this woman, right? He's like, this woman is worthless. She's a sinner. How dare a so prophet entertain, uh, even interact with her in any way? But he's also judging jury of Jesus, right? He says, he can't be a prophet. He should have known who she was and, and, she, and sent, shushed her away like she was a stray cat. Right? He should have strut, he should have said, shush, get out of here. I'm a prophet. You're a sinner. How dare you come into my presence and shush her away like a stray cat? Upholding his honor and status as a holy man, a man of God. But the issue here is the real fool in this whole story 
is not the woman and it's not Jesus, it's the host, it's Simon. He's the true fool. If you go back to uh, verse 35 of, of last week of, of Luke 7, it says, yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Basically, wisdom is revealed to all her children. This man is a fool, the Bible says. He's a fool. He's the identity of the children of foolishness. He's unloving, number one. He, you know, I, I, he entered in, uh, Jesus said, I entered into your house and you gave me no water for my feet, no kiss. You did not oint my, my, my feet with oil. You're not unloving. You don't love me. You don't even respect me. You don't even honor me as your guest. You don't even show me friendship. He's also unrepentant. He, when Jesus tells him this parable of the two debtors, the other 50 that could not cancel his debt, but he, had, he forgives little, loves little. He had no comprehension of his sin. He had no comprehension of his utter insufficiency, and he remains unforgiven. Jesus does not forgive, him, forgive his sins. He only forgives the woman's sins. He rejected the purposes of God for themselves. In verse 30 of chapter 7, he hated God's grace in Christ. He hated those whose God's grace had been given to. I don't want to believe in a God who is merciful to a woman like that. That God doesn't exist in my world. My God would never do that. God would only show love to people like me, who are righteous and law-abiding, not sinners. He has a false theology, a belief in a God of your making, none of the word of God. Fools worship a God who they create with their own mind and hands. He worshiped a God he created in his own mind. The importance of God's word in worship. Worship is the wrong, worship in the wrong direction is idolatry. If you're worshiping something that doesn't exist and actually isn't God, it's idolatry. And this is what this Pharisee Simon worshiped. Accept me for my righteous deeds and external actions so that I can be right and better than those who fall short. That is the scripture of idolatry. Accept me for all that I do right and good and reject those who are worthless like that woman. So your joy and happiness is based off your abilities in comparison to other people. I'm a winner and that woman is a loser. So we give our lives to that end. And the idol of control and reputation, if I can make everything in my life look a certain way, then I am a success. If I can make everyone else, if, if, if I can make everyone see me in a certain way, then I'm a success. So I'm critical of everyone who falls to reach her level of success. Therefore, judging who the winners and losers are. This woman is a loser. Simon is a winner. Boasting in your successes and shining light on the failures of others. If this is you, sorry for my frankness, but you're a fool. If you're a fool, you believe in a God of control of your own making. If I worship, if I can make my world exactly the way that I want it, and I can have a reputation that other people look at me as a success, that is your end, that is your happiness, that is a false God, and you're a fool for worshiping it. Boasting in our successes and shining light on the failures of others, if this is you, you are a fool. You know, I, we, none of us are, guilt, are, are innocent of this, right? I mean, I've, I have fallen into this trap of reputation, of worshiping my reputation, that certain people look at me as successful. And if they see me as successful, then that is good. And those who, who don't reach my expectations or who, who, aren't, who don't reach my understanding of what success is, they are the losers. And I compare myself, right? I'm, I'm a winner. They're a loser. Proving myself to people 
that I look at as a winner and others who aren't are losers. Fools are revealed by their worship. Fools are revealed by what they worship. If you worship yourself or you worship some control, you are a fool. It reveals who you are and you're a fool. And that is what the host is. This host, Simon, is a fool. And he worships a God of his making. Therefore, he's a fool. Point number two is the wise sinner. The wise sinner. So point number one is the foolish host. Point number two is the wise sinner. And so we see in verse seven, in verse in, in the story about this woman, starting in verse 37, this woman in the city who was a sinner. That's all we get. We don't know her name. We assume her occupation a little bit. Um, but we're not really given that detail. We're trying to look, kind of look between the lines here of the story. The news of Jesus' presence and of the Simon's house spread around the city, not a private or closed-off dinner scene. Obviously, if she's walking off the streets into the dinner, there must have been an open door. It must have been open to the streets. Uh, maybe uh, it was common if rabbis and religious leaders were getting together for dinner, there was going to be a theological discussion, like a forum, and so people were invited to come and listen. Maybe that was the scene. Maybe that was the, the circumstance or the situation. So this woman hears about this, woman hears about this and she runs to find Christ. It was open for the people to come and listen. So the woman of a city who was a sinner, her identification is a sinner. Therefore, her sin is a very public thing. I mean, for that information to be put there, that her she was known as a Pharisee even says she is a sinner, most likely then her sin is very public. Maybe she was a prostitute, someone who had to work the streets, and her sin was exposed to the eyes of the world. She was a known woman in the industry. Um, I was when I was thinking through this. I was thinking of this woman, this, this character of this of this story in Jesus' life, and I was thinking of Les Miserables and and, uh, and Fontaine, who uh, was the prostitute from the story. If you've seen the newest movie, that was the, the character that um, Anne Hathaway played. When she had her daughter named Cassette, and she sells her hair and her teeth to take care of her daughter, and when she had nothing else. To, to give to, for her daughter, she is enforced into prostitution, and then she is despised as a prostitute. And she sings that song, right, that famous song from the, from the Broadway show, A Dream to Dream, and it says at the end, I dreamed my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. I thought, when I thought about this story, I thought of this, this woman from the city as this woman who is in this industry. She may not even want to be there. She may not have wanted to, you know, she was a child. You know what? When I grow up, I want to be a prostitute. Most likely that wasn't true. Most likely she was forced into this situation. Maybe she made a few choices and decisions, and this is where she is, but she's known as a sinner. That is her identity to the public. You know what? I, I thought this is may, it's maybe out, out of bounds, but it, it may be out, it's not out of the realm of possibility that Simon knew the woman because maybe in secret he paid for her services. Maybe other men in his society had paid for her services. I mean, it is their word against, I mean, is it their word against a prostitute's word? Who would believe her? Simon as an honorable man, a man of respect, a man of piety, or her? I mean, that's why he didn't want her there. Maybe he had a history with her. Jesus, she was this audacious, she audaciously invites herself into his home, and she brought this flask of, of perfume, and standing behind his feet, she weeps. She begins to wet his feet with his tears, with her tears, wipe them with the hair of her head, and kiss his feet, and anoint them with a perfume. And Jesus' feet are getting away from the table. She begins to express her love for Christ. 
Something happened to her in her past. This isn't some spur-of-the-moment thing. She sees Jesus. She just runs in there, and she happens just to fall at his feet and cry. This was not something. This was she had been changed in her past. Something happened to her in her past. She had experienced God's mercy in her past. And she's expressing worship. She recognized God's mercy on her life. She was most likely one of the common people baptized by John the Baptist in verse 29. She had come to identify Jesus as the Messiah who brought salvation to the lowly, to sinners like herself. Her life had been changed by the grace of God. The beginning of her expression of worship began before the perfume and the tears in the house of Simon. She had already experienced God's mercy through Christ Jesus on her life. She showed religious affection because her heart had been changed. Change nature, Jonathan Edwards says in Religious Affections, is attended with a change of heart. She recognized her utter insufficiencies to redeem herself, to change her nature, and she embraced the goodness and mercy of God. God's mercy and grace and love on her, on her influenced her heart. Her heart was revealed through her worship of Christ here in this episode. Worship started far before the event in Simon's house. It started with her heart. Her heart was changed. We think about the two debtors in the parable that Jesus says. It took 500, 100 denarii was the other, was the other person's debt. It was to be two years of work. She could never pay that off. No one could ever, and this person in the story couldn't pay it off. And Jesus says, do you see this woman? She has been forgiven. She has then wet my feet. She has not ceased to kiss my feet. She has anointed my feet. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Therefore, she loved much. She had forgiven by Christ, her, she was completely insufficient to give herself, to provide any salvation to herself, to earn any type of grace. And she loved much because she, her sins were many. Her attitude, she did not give a, she didn't give a crap what people thought about her. I mean, insert your word, right? If, if that word's not strong enough for you, if you want to insert a different word, go for it. But that's basically what she could care less what people thought of her. Because it was a crude expression. I mean, she runs in and she's crying on his feet. She's, she's runs into this house she's not been invited to. She didn't give a crap. She came busting through the door, worshiping Christ in a way that some, if not all, would think is unsophisticated, awkward, and uncomfortable. Simon did, and most likely his other guests. Yet she was exalting Christ in spirit and truth. She honored him for who he is and what he did for her. For many of us, including myself, we struggle to exalt Christ because deep down we do not acknowledge fully what Christ has done for us. If you did, you would worship him, caring little what people thought. He died on the cross to save you from, your enduring, uh, from enduring that same judgment, yet we passively worship him. How outrageous. How shameful. How crude. How crude not to worship the one who died on the cross so that you can be forgiven. That is the crudest form of salvation, of, of worship. That is the crudest form. The vain worship, the crudest form of worship in this story is not the woman, it's Simon. The vain worship. Some of you here have been worshiping in the most crude form because it's fake. It's fake. You may go, those guys that raise their arms and shout and do all kinds of things, how weird, how awkward, how unsophisticated, but yet you're fake. That is the most unsophisticated crude form of worship you can actually do. 
I've been there as well. Wanting to look certain ways so that other people see me as a worshiper of God, but yet in my heart, I'm so far from him. It's fake, it's vain, it's crude. And that's why later, that's why we do communion every week, so you can reflect. So before you take the bread and drink of the cup, you confess sin. You get right with God, and then you worship him. And you don't just do it out of fake or vain. We share the same identity as the woman. You are a man or a woman of the city who is a sinner. You do not love much because you do not acknowledge that you in the amazing grace of Christ who cleanses us from all unrighteousness and makes us new. So you fail to worship. You struggle to exalt Christ. If you struggle to worship, if you struggle to exalt Christ, it's because your heart is far from him. It has nothing to do with the music. It has nothing to do with the people on the stage. It has nothing to do with the lighting or the, the whatever. It has more to do with your heart. The last character here is the forgiving guest. The Pharisees saw this. I love Jesus' words, right? He goes, Simon, I have something to say to you. Like, he just, like, he just, almost like, hey, can I talk to you in the corner here? Hey, I have something, I need need to say something, or I need to rebuke you. And he does rebuke him. Jesus knows what Simon's thinking before he thought it, right? Simon's like, how dare he do this? How dare he let this woman do this? If he was a true prophet, he would know she is a sinner, and he would never let her do that. He's thinking this, right? He's having this inner monologue, and Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking. He knows what Simon's thinking when the woman weeps, wipes, and anoints him. He doesn't stop her. Instead, he accepts it. He's pleased with it. Jesus never stops her from what she's doing. He disregards whatever the cultural norm is. He defines what pleasing worship is. The woman presents an example of pleasing worship, worship that is true and faithful and good. He is liked. Um, let me present you a lesson on worship. Behold, take note and fall. He's basically saying to them, you want to know what worship is? Look at this woman. That is what worship is. You may want to follow her example. He said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Not your sins are now forgiven because you did this to me. Your sins have already been forgiven. Sin had already been redeemed of her sin. Christ had forgiven her. No one had anything to accuse her of. She sinned against God and the Son of God who is God forgave her. Paul says in Romans 8, 33 through 35, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, was raised, who at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who is this, they say, who even forgives sins? He's God. Your sins are against a holy God, yet Christ has the power and authority to say because he is God. Her sins were not against anyone but Christ and God, and God saved her and forgave her of those sins. As Sean read in Psalm 51, David's sins were not to Bathsheba or Uriah, it was to God. God is the one he sinned against. And this woman sinned against God, and this Pharisee is calling her a sinner. God calls her a sinner and then forgives her. Christ, God sent Christ to save her from her sins to transform us into a realm of peace. He says to her at the end, your faith has saved you. Now go into peace. Not go in peace, but go into peace. You are now living in a realm of peace. He transforms us into the realm of peace. If you believe in Christ Jesus, if he has saved you, you live in peace. God is at peace with you. You have been reconciled. And as I read in, in Romans 8, nothing can separate you from that realm of peace. No one can take you out of that realm of peace and put you in a of war or hate with God because you've been saved by Christ.
God has separated the sins of the woman as far as the east is from the west. Forgiveness means divorce. He has divorced her from her present and future. Her past, no longer her identity. Her identity is her reality in the present and future, which is in Christ. She has been returned to the garden. She has been welcomed home. She has been embraced by her father and creator. It doesn't matter what she did in the past. She's been accepted and welcomed home. And she worships that fact. She's a worshiper. She's no longer a prostitute. She's no longer a sinner. She's a worshiper of God. And that is the last point I'm going to make is the great end of our existence. John Calvin said we should consider the great end of our existence to be found numbered among the worshipers of God. The end, the great end of our existence, not a end, not one of the ends, but the great end of our existence is to be found numbered among the worshipers of God. Be a worshiper of God. The great purpose of our existence, greater than all the power, wealth, talent, intelligence, or pleasure, is to be a worshiper of God. To be one who unceasingly, joyfully, wholeheartedly, and eternally worships our great God is the purpose of life. If you want to know about the million-dollar philosophical question, what is the meaning of life? It's to be a worshiper of God and to do to worship him in spirit and in truth. And you can't do that without Christ. Like worship starts with God and focuses on God. Worship starts with mercy from God in Christ and continues with exalting his glory in our hearts and by visible actions. I have plenty more I could say about how we do in our hearts. Obviously, it, it, we have to do it with our thoughts, our faith. Um, we do it with our gratefulness. Then we expose those changes in our hearts through our actions, through our obedience, through our praise to him, through our godly speech, through our grace-motivated service, through our faithful witness of Christ. When we share the gospel with the world, we're showing what God's done in our lives, that we're worshipers of him, and people go, you're a worshiper of God, and your life exposes that. You talk about it. You love Christ. It comes out of your pores. I want to know that God that you praise. But you can't do that unless your heart's been changed by Christ. And if you're struggling in worship on a Sunday morning, you're definitely going to struggle in worship Monday through Friday. What does Jesus say to the woman at the well? What did, what did the woman say after she had an interaction with Jesus at the well? Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. That is worship. She worshiped through her faithful witness because her heart had been changed by Christ. I want to read something. It just, this may come off maybe not as connected, but it is connected to what I'm saying because when the church worships together, it is unbelievable, right? And I'm not talking about Sunday mornings alone. I'm talking about Monday through Saturday when the church helps one another and loves one another and gathers together uh, throughout the week and they, and they care for one another. That's worship. That's the church worshiping together. It has nothing to do with music. has nothing to do with singing. has nothing to do with guitars and drums. But it is worship. And it's true worship. There's a story that I came across um, my Facebook scroll uh, yesterday. And it's from Nine Marks. Nine Marks is a, is a church. Um, it's not really a church network. Uh, it's a nonprofit that does a lot of books and resources for healthy churches. Our church is a part of the Nine Marks, where if you go on Nine Marks' website and go to their church directory, our church is on that directory. Um, this is a pastor named Brad in England. His wife, Megan, is on her deathbed. This is the story. The story began last Friday when she was 
was nine months pregnant and healthy, got a small cut into a group A uh, infection. Her brain swelled, causing catastrophic damage. She declined uh, on Saturday, and the doctors determined her to immediately remove the child by C-section. Uh, the baby was born. The seventh child God gave to Brad and Megan in their th- last 13 years. Praise God. Yet he, he, her decline continued. On Sunday, this was his past Sunday, doctors declared Megan and placed her on life support. They gave her a few days before her heart stops beating. So this pastor, this, this husband of this, of this, of this, this wife's on her deathbed, Megan, she just had this baby, their seventh baby. Think about it. You have seven kids now, and your wife is on her deathbed. He even says in his tweets, in his kind of his, he kind of, he, he sent out like group texts to people and, that knew him. And, and in his text, he's like, what am I going to do? My life is so intertwined with my wife, and I have seven kids. What am I going to do? I, I need my wife. I, I can't go on without her. And he, this is, this is his, he, he sends this long group message. He says, Megan's the only love of my life. It's fading. Pray for a miracle, yes, and I have not given up, but God hasn't done it yet. To prolong this by keeping her on life support, waiting for that miracle, or to pretend Megan's getting better when she's not. This may be selfish. I don't want to keep Megan from Jesus. I feel more numb surrounding all of this today. The situation has grown graver. Hear me clearly, though. I, I am, we are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Christ Jesus... And this changes everything. I went to bed telling myself I, was going to write, I wasn't going to write one of these again. I know my own simple heart. I've asked my brothers and sisters to help me in this. I, can I be honest? I'm doing this for myself as much as anyone else. I've always been this way. I figure out when I'm talking to others. God has made all of his people part to be a group project. God made his people for the local church, isn't he? I need my family, especially my children. Megan's family now, of course. But please understand me. I need the folks from my church much, if not more. I think the Bible bears this reality out. I also need the folks from the universal, universal body of Christ. If you're a Christian reading this, are you a member of the local church? Not a video church, not a satellite campus where the pastor doesn't know you, not your own church at home, not a solo Christian. A solo Christian is an oxymoron, like a warm, warm ice cream or likable arson football. He's a big soccer fan. Um, as an aside, I haven't checked the news in four days, but it did my harm my heart. That, that He's talking about his, his soccer team. Um, I like, I was talking about, again, the soccer team a little bit here. What I was saying, oh, yes, the local church. Have I beat that drum enough? I really need the church right now. And they have been there. I don't mean just one or two paid staff team. I mean everybody. One couple with a relatively new baby themselves is watching over our dog. Many are making meals. Others have watched our children text, prayed, sat with me, pointed me to Christ. Another couple who used to be members but moved to Northern Ireland are bringing a pizza meal from Belfast. Might get cold flying across the Irish Sea with it. Guys, this is the local church, a group of people saved by Jesus who live in roughly the same location and are committed to each other for each other's spiritual and practical good to the glory of God. It's like a light, a little outpost of heaven on earth. I can't help but plead pastorally with all of you, be an actual, committed, formal member of a local church. You need it to obey Jesus. You need it to be more like Jesus. You need it for moments like the one I'm in. The nurses around Megan see this. They can't believe the reality of our church. My children right now love our church because our church obviously loves us. Do you love the church enough to inconvenience yourself for her and commit to her? It pays off. Exhibit A, the nurses caring for my wife and child are seeing the glory of God. That's worship. That is the most truest form of worship you can find. It has nothing to do with music. It has nothing to do with style. I cannot tell you how, much, how mad I get 
someone says, what kind of worship style does your church do? As a precursor to coming here, it drives me crazy because it has nothing to do with worship. This is worship. This is what this woman did. She loved Christ so much, she worshiped him. These people love this family and love Christ so much, they worship Christ through their giving and their love for this family. That's worship. And I just want to encourage you, because we've all been there. We've all been in these places where we thought we thought we were doing it every Sunday morning, but in reality, we were so far from Christ, and it was all fake. It was all fake. And as we take communion, I'm going to encourage you to reflect, to confess, to draw yourself close to Christ. Understand Christ's love for you, that he has forgiven you of your sins, that he loves you, he died on the cross for you. And to show that, exalt him, express your love for him in your worship. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we are so thankful.